just uh, if anybody does come in and is looking for some open seating, we do have, you can sit there, I got my stuff be underneath the seats, but we've got some seats here and some seats here, so if somebody could direct them there, that would be great. Uh, this morning's sermon will be our last sermon in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, next Sunday, we'll, we will do a standalone sermon, and then we will turn to the Psalms like we have for the last few summers, and then in the fall, we will get back into the Gospel of Luke. This morning's sermon will be an overview of a large section of Luke's gospel, uh, Luke 6, 17 through 49. This is not normally how we work through a passage. It's three, six, seven, maybe eight verses, but this morning it's going to be a little different, and I invite you to turn there now in your Bible. So Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Now collectively, these verses make up what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. Yes, I said that right. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Sermon on the Plain. However, as you'll notice, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, there are a lot of similarities between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. However, the biggest difference is the length of these two sermons. The Sermon on the Mount takes up three whole chapters in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the Sermon on the Plain is less than a full chapter in Luke's Gospel. As we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we notice that there are a lot of, of parables and illustrations and quotes that many people, even non-Christians, are very familiar with. And some of these are also in the Sermon on the Plain. For example, the Beatitudes. Jesus is called to love our enemies. The instructions not to judge, which have been misused, mistaken, and taken out of their context to mean that you never make any judgments, but we'll get into that a little bit this morning and, and more in the fall when we make our way through that. And the Lord's Prayer is in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in comparison, the Sermon on the Plain is, is, again, less than one chapter long, and it doesn't include the Lord's Prayer. It's possible that these two sermons are actually the same sermon and, and commentators have made suggestions on how that could be. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and as we read through it, maybe that'll become more clear to you that this is the same sermon. Uh, however, Luke could be giving us a summary of that Sermon on the Mount, or it could be that they're different sermons that cover much of the same content because Jesus often preached on the subjects that are found in both of these sermons. Now, despite the Sermon on the Plain being the shorter of the two, it's still quite a long passage, so my aim this morning won't be to cover every detail. What I want to do instead in this sermon is to look at the sermon as a whole, and my reason for doing this overview is that I can, I, I can at times make my way through a large section of scripture and, and miss the bigger picture. And so this morning what I want to do is, is see the bigger picture. There's a, a phrase, and anytime I, I don't look at my notes and I have one of those old phrases, I'm, I'm bound to, to mess it up. So to draw from an old phrase, I, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. So we're, we're going to look at the whole sermon on the plain before we examine it in parts, which we'll do in the fall. And so in the fall, we'll probably take five sermons to go through this, this chunk of scripture. But this first one is something like an introduction and overview, and, and uh, I, I want us to, to, to really see and get a sense of what Jesus is getting, in this, getting at in this passage. Charles Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. 
for good reason. The Lord uniquely gifted him to preach and bless his preaching so much so that nearly 130 years later, transcripts of his sermons continue to bless and serve Christ's church. I've heard stories of people being converted by reading Charles Spurgeon's sermon transcripts, and they're long transcripts, and they, there's old English. The Lord blessed this, this faithful servant's preaching. And yet as great of a preacher as Spurgeon was, and I think he's one of the greatest uh, preachers of all times, of all time, he was not given the title of king of preachers. That title belongs to Jesus Christ. For Jesus is not only the king that all faithful preachers preach, he is the greatest preacher of all time. And I want you to get a, a sense of that as we read through this entire sermon on the plain. You're hearing the king of preachers preach about his kingdom. And with that, would all of those who are able please stand for the reading of God's word. We will read all the way to the end of chapter 6. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were, were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher." Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! 
First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. Let's now go to Lord in prayer. Lord, my heart is glad in you this morning in that I'm seeing faces that I haven't seen in quite some time. I'm reminded of your goodness to your church that you will sustain us through the times that we're not able to meet, the times that we cannot see each other face to face, and video conferencing just does not do it. It is good to be with some of your people on this Lord's day. I pray that you would increase our gladness in you. And yet the reality is, even as we're glad in you, we mourn and we grieve over what we see in our country. Many of us don't know what to say. We are grieved by the, the death of a man. I, I think it's, it was murder, an unjust murder. We're grieved by, by some who are responding by, by looting and rioting. I do believe, Lord, there is a cry for, for true justice in the midst of this, and I pray that you would give it. We cry out to you, God, for biblical justice to be done and for, for the change that needs to happen in, in so many hearts. Help us, Lord, to see things clearly through a biblical lens. Lord, we live in a, a very polarized time. We feel that more and more as your people. We're burdened for our country, for uh, our leaders, for the, the people who are, who are especially hurting right now. Family members of friends of George Floyd, those who are going through the, the turmoil of, of, of trying to clean up a business that may be destroyed again and, and not knowing where, where to go or what to do. At the same time, we're, we're struggling with, with what to do when it comes to, to social distancing, wearing masks or not wearing masks. Some of us are struggling with that. And yet your people can be glad in you because you have not changed and you love us, and you are worthy of our worship. And so we gather this morning. Uh, there, there are likely many differences of opinion and perspectives in this church, but we are united by Christ. And so I pray that as we make our way through this great sermon that the King of Preachers preached, that you would press upon the truths that each of us need to hear this morning onto our hearts, that we would not dismiss what you have for us this morning. Where change needs to happen, we pray that you would bring it. Soften hard hearts, Increase our knowledge of your goodness, of your love, of your holiness. Lord, feed your people. And not just with food, but with, with food for our souls. 
We need strength. We need wisdom. We need your love to guide us. We pray for those who are especially hurting and grieving because they're lonely. They don't have family members. Maybe they're single. They're isolated. We pray that you would continue to sustain and strengthen them, that you would bless them through relationships in this church and family members, friends, neighbors. We pray for those who are going through various health issues besides COVID-19 that continue to to be serious and, and major. Those in the hospital, those receiving dialysis, cancer treatment. Lord, be with them. Help us to pray for them better and more. And now, Lord, as we seek to worship you and and we seek to be changed by your spirit, we pray that you do all these things and more for your glory and the joy of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, The passage this morning begins with Jesus coming down from the mountain with his 12 disciples after he had prayed with them and set them apart. It seems that somewhere higher on the mountain, he commissioned the 12, and as, as the group of 12 and Jesus made their way down the mountain, either at the base of the mountain or somewhere on their way down, there was a flat place. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Plain. There was a, a, a flat place either on the mountain or at the base of the mountain where they gathered, and they were met there by this great multitude of people who had come to hear Jesus preach, and, and some had come to be healed by Jesus. Luke notes that this large crowd consisted of people who had come from all different parts of Israel as well as Tyre and Sidon, which was north of Israel in present-day Lebanon. This gives us a sense of how popular Jesus had become in a time before newspapers, a time before phones, computers, and social media, information spread by word of mouth. And people were talking about Jesus, and they were talking about him not just in Israel, but beyond the borders of Israel. God was making his son known, and not just to Israel, but to the world already in the beginning stages of his earthly ministry. This is Jesus' first major public sermon in Luke's gospel. Previously, he's been teaching mainly in synagogues and homes, and as he travels and he stops and a crowd meets with him, but he's been preaching and teaching to much smaller groups and crowds. So this is his first sermon to a a much bigger and wider audience. Along with the 12, there were other disciples. There there was this group of disciples, followers of Jesus, who were following the, 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 the whole crowd. There were the 12. And then there were these Jews who had come from throughout Israel, and then there were likely Gentiles who had come from from Tyre and Sidon. Though Jesus covers a lot of ground in this sermon, what we find in the sermon is teaching on what it means to follow Jesus and how things work in his kingdom. Remember, he's had these repeated run-ins with the Pharisees, this group of religious leaders that have opposed his authority, questioned his abilities, and criticized his teachings. They've attacked him. They've tried to trip him up. And now it's as if he comes out of the woodwork and he says, this is what I'm about. This is what it means to follow me. And this is what my kingdom is like. But with this sermon, Jesus lays out publicly in more detail than ever before to more people than ever before the scope of his authority. He doesn't shrink back. You know, oftentimes when somebody becomes popular, they lose their edge. You know, they, they cater to the masses. Jesus, our Savior, our King, doesn't do that. He presses further into the differences between the people that are leading the Jews, whether it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians or, or the Roman government, all these groups of people that think they, they know how to, how to do things. And he, and he 
confronts all of them with his teachings in this, this passage, in this sermon. And he shows just how countercultural his kingdom really is in this sermon. And so, again, in this sermon, the king of preachers preaches on his kingdom. We're going to look at it in three parts. When we go through in the fall, I think it'll be five, maybe six sermons. But today, again, it's just an overview, and I'm going to look at it in three parts. I think this will give us a good overview of the whole sermon. And these parts are the king's rewards, the king's ethics, and the king's wisdom. They definitely could be broken up more, but I think this is a good summary. The king's rewards, the king's ethics, and the king's wisdom. We begin then with verses 20 through 26, the king's rewards. These verses draw us back to the Old Testament, especially the ministry of the prophets, and to the theme of covenant, an important biblical theme that's carried throughout the the scriptures. Now, one place that you can see this This connection between this passage and the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. There, God renews his covenant with Israel by having Moses pronounce God's blessings on Israel if they kept the covenant and God's curses on Israel if they broke the covenant with God. And this is an important time because God is preparing them to enter into the promised land. And so he renews the covenant through a mediator, Moses. So much of the prophets' ministry in the Old Testament consisted of of them calling Israel to repent, that is to return to the Lord, so that they would once again experience the blessings or the rewards of the covenant that God had made with them. And the prophet at the same time is often warning Israel of the curses or consequence that they're already experiencing for breaking the covenant or they will soon experience if they don't return and repent. Here Jesus pronounces four blessings and then four woes that are the opposite of those blessings. We can see this more clearly just by looking at them together, the the corresponding blessing and woe. And so if you look at the passage, it's Luke 6.20 and then Luke 6.24. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's the blessing. And then the reverse or the opposite, woe. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The next one, Luke 6.21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Then we move down to Luke 6, 25. That's interesting. I can't even get my own name right there. It's Luke, not like. Luke 6, 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The third blessing in woe. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Luke 6, 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Blessing in woe four. Luke 6, 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so we have a blessing and a woe and they correspond. In this world, those who are rich who are full, who laugh, who are popular, are considered blessed. But in Jesus' kingdom, it's the opposite. The poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the hated are blessed, while the rich, the full, the laughing, and the popular are cursed. Now, Jesus is not saying that a person will be blessed simply because they are poor, or they're starving, or grieving, or hated, or that people will be cursed simply because they have money, because they enjoy a good big meal, because they laugh at a wholesome, clean joke, or they are well-liked by others. No, the context of the sermon is discipleship. 
Jesus is establishing the differences between his kingdom and the kingdom of the world. Do you remember Jesus' answer to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? In John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Things are very different in Jesus' kingdom. And the truth that Jesus is making known here is that in the end, those who follow him, those who trust in him, those who are citizens of his kingdom will be blessed. They will be blessed. And those who reject Jesus, who do not trust in him, who are not citizens of his kingdom, they will be cursed. That's what he's saying in this section. Those who follow Jesus, even though they experience poverty and hunger and grief and are hated in this life, will be rewarded in the future because they are Jesus' disciples, citizens of his kingdom. Verses 22 and 23 make this clear. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. When is that day? It's in the future. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We're looking towards heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In this day, you might be rejected. You might be hated. But in that day, you'll be accepted. You'll be loved. You'll be received. Friends, Jesus is teaching us to not let the appearance of blessing in this life fool us. Just because someone has a lot of money doesn't mean that the smile of God is upon them. Don't be tricked. Don't be confused. You can see that in so many ways. You look at popular culture, celebrities, athletes who have so much money, and sad story after sad story. How many times have they been married, divorced, married again, divorced? How many of them have committed suicide? who have become drug addicts, so many. And yet we, we can sometimes look at them and say, oh, look how good their life is. They have all that money. They live in a big house. They drive the nicest, best cars. And yet the smile of God is not upon them. Again, I, I want to be clear. It's not that being wealthy is a sin. God has and will entrust wealth to some of us, some of you. But at times, as we have and we will see even more in the Gospel of Luke, being rich in this life can be a hindrance to coming to Jesus. It can end up being a curse. For example, in Luke 18, we're told about this rich man, this rich ruler who comes to Jesus claiming to have kept all of God's law. To which Jesus says to him, beginning in verse 22, Luke 18, 22. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is this? Why is it hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God? Because many who are rich in this life they live for and they are satisfied by the things of this world. They're not looking for more than what they have. They think they've, they've arrived in heaven. They're not following Jesus. They don't desire the kingdom of God. They're not seeking after greater rewards. Instead, they're following a false temporary king. His name is money. 
They desire the things of this world and they're living for earthly rewards. They want to be rich and famous. They want to be accepted and received by the world. They don't care about God ultimately. And so you see, Jesus is not ultimately focused on physical blessings. He's using the physical to get at the spiritual. Matthew 5, 3, the Sermon on the Mount, is helpful here as Matthew adds this qualifier. There we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It seems that poor in spirit is omitted in Luke to press this truth even further. If you reject Jesus, if your greatest desire is to be wealthy, to have money, to be rich, in the end, you will be cursed. You will be cursed. If your greatest desire is for money, a curse is coming your way, not blessing. But if by God's grace, through faith, you receive Jesus, you receive Jesus, if, if you trust in Christ, if your desire is for the kingdom of God, whether you are economically rich or poor, if you are full or hungry, you live a comfortable or a difficult life, whether you are well-liked or hated, you will be rewarded by the king when he returns. Yours will be the kingdom of God. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. You will leap for joy. In the king's rewards, we find this great reversal that happens in Jesus' kingdom. If you are a Christian, this reality and remembering these heavenly rewards can help keep you from idolatry. Knowing that you are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, that Jesus is your king, and that when he comes back, he has promised to graciously reward you, puts the blessings and the hardships, both, that you face in this life in their proper place. Are you rich? or poor, hungry or full, joyful or sorrowful, popular or hated. These things matter. Jesus healed the sick that came to him. He cast out demons from the tormented and he fed the hungry because the physical matters to God. And, and God cares about these needs. But this life and the material treasures of this world are going to come to an end. They will not last. Sometimes we think this is gonna last forever. The other day I was looking at my 11-year-old son. I don't feel 37. I, I can't, it, it's hard for me to understand that I have an 11-year-old son who is like, like be, becoming a teenager almost, who I had to buy deodorant for. Like, th I, my life is going fast. I have four, I still, I have four children. That's crazy. Sometimes I'm like, how did this happen? I, I, I went to sleep, I woke up, and I have gray hair like on my head and in my beard. This is not going to last forever. So don't live just for the things of this world. Your life is going to end, or Jesus is going to come back, and you will be rewarded or you will be cursed. This life and the material treasures of this world are going to come to an end. They will not last, so don't live for them. Don't put your hope in them. Live for Christ, for his kingdom, and the heavenly eternal rewards that await those who trust and follow him. So this passage provides you with a correction. American Christian who has been so blessed. The poor people in our country are rich compared to the poor people in so many other countries. That's not to diminish their standing or their struggles. That's just a reality. 
And so many of us are captured by the shiny things of this world, even us Christians who treasure Christ. So this offers a correction, and it also offers fuel. When you're discouraged, when you're frustrated, when you don't think you're making a difference, press on, brother. Press on, sister. God has promised you, your king has promised you rewards, blessings when he, when he comes back. This brings us to the king's ethics, verses 27 through 42. Now, an ethic is a set of morals that establish what is right and wrong. They are principles for how a certain group is to behave and conduct themselves. Again, in this section, we see the, the counter-cultural nature of following Jesus in a sinful, rebellious, fallen world. What Jesus says here is it, it's difficult to wrap not just our, our minds around, but especially our hearts around. I can understand what he's saying, but what's hard is when, when I begin to try and apply it, live it out. We see this in the very first verse in, the, in this section where Jesus says in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. This same call to love our enemies is reiterated later in verses 35 and 36 where Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be the sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. It's not hard for us to embrace the call to love certain people. I can love my beautiful, awesome wife. She's easy to love. I can love my four boys. Sometimes it's hard when they're disrespecting one of us. Sometimes it's hard when, when they refuse to obey and we got to go through the whole gospel discipline, correct and address the issue and walk through that with them. But they're still overall easy to love, especially because they're cute and they kind of look like us. So, you know, that, that helps them out there. there there's so many people that, that are easy to love. It's hard to wrap our minds a little bit around. It seems like a good idea. But then especially our hearts around this call to love those who hate us. And Jesus doesn't just give a general call to love those who hate us. In a demonstration of his sovereign authority, as not just a preacher or a prophet, but as the king of his kingdom, he tells those who receive him, who are following him, his disciples, who are citizens of his kingdom, that that's us, church, you, you, me, and every Christian, whether we are rich or poor, full or hungry, weeping or rejoicing, rejected or accepted, black or white, man or woman, young or old, millennial or baby boomer, that we must not just love our enemies in some vague, nebulous, like whatever sense, but we are to do good to them. We're to bless them. We're to pray for them. We're to turn the other cheek. We're to give to them without expecting a return. That's countercultural. This is not the ethic that is taught in this fallen world. The ethic the world teaches is that you are to do bad to, to those who do bad to you. You're to curse those who curse you, condemn those who oppose you, in whatever realm that you're talking about. It could be in sports. Oh, those Bears fans, those Vikings fans. And we joke about it, or we kind of laugh about it, and I've even made some of those jokes in my sermons. And that's just a, a, a little taste of it, but then it comes to politically. Oh, those Democrats, they're, they're so this or that. Those Republicans, those independents who just won't pick a team, come on. You know, we, we, we're taught this. It's, it's, it's all around us. Condemn, condemn, condemn. The ethic of the world is to beat or be beaten. 
to demand payment with a high interest. But here comes Jesus, King Jesus, calling those who follow him to love those who hate them. We we can't just try to soften the challenge in Jesus' ethics. Our king instructs us to love those who hate us, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. They have darker or lighter skin, whether they're an atheist, agnostic, or even an Aryan white supremacist. And our king says that this love is not just to be in theory, but it's to be shown in real ways. Certainly, wisdom is to be applied in various other passages in Scripture. Help us understand how we are to love others in various appropriate God-honoring ways. Sometimes we need to call them out. Love is not passive when it comes to sin. If somebody is living in sin, you don't just say, well, I'm going to love you and just kind of coexist with you living in sin. No, your house is on fire. And by that, I mean your soul is on fire. You're headed towards hell. Please, because I love you, repent. Turn from that sin and and turn to Jesus. That's love. So I'm not advocating, and Jesus is not advocating for some passive coexisting. Don't press into conflict where conflict is needed. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is king. He sets the standards, though, our our morals, the laws in his kingdom. And so you don't get to follow him on your own terms. Dismiss this lightly and just try and, and, and just push it to the side. The Bible teaches us that we are fallen, and, and even after God saves us and gives us a new heart, we will battle against sin, and sin in some way, shape, or form always comes back to not loving God and not loving others. Coupled with this, we live in a world and find ourselves within a culture where hatred is very much alive and well. It's alive and well today. We see this in the way that we're encouraged to hold grudges. People, sometimes even Christians, will say, well, you have a right to hold a grudge against that person. We've been taught, and some of us have bought into this idea that we can resent people, that we can pursue vengeance, not biblical justice. We see this in what I understand to be the murder of a man named George Floyd in Minneapolis by the knee of a police officer and the rioting and looting that has taken place throughout this country, even in our own city since. Racism is hate. It's sin and sadly the evil sin of racism is likely in more hearts than we realize. We also see the sin of hatred manifested in the murder of millions and millions of pre-born babies who have been aborted in this country. There will not be unity and peace. There will not be love in a country where the most vulnerable among us are slaughtered in their mother's womb. We hear hate nightly on the news. It's in our politics as politicians seem to do more name calling than debating the issues. And hate can often be heard in everyday conversations with family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers. As what do you think is at the root of much gossip, slander, and deceit? Hatred. Friends, whatever love we experience in this world flows from the grace of God, either his common grace or his saving grace. It does not originate in this world, for God is love, and true love comes from God. And so as we await our king's return, when our love will be untainted, no more sin, and our experience of his love will be complete, we who are citizens of Jesus' kingdom are to model his love. And one of the ways we do that is by loving those who hate us because we follow Jesus. You want to shine for Jesus? You want to be a light for the kingdom of God? You want to be a a gospel vessel? Love those who hate you. That's huge. 
Because even in this culture and, and as people call for unity and peace and love, I see it on both sides. They're not loving the other side. They're hating the other side. And then we Christians, even as we might agree on certain issues with both sides, we come through and we say, I love you and I love you. That's, that's how we're going to make this huge gospel work happen in this culture, in this society, in our country. By loving those who hate us. It's a love that Jesus has not just modeled for us, but a love that he's given to us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Don't forget who you were. You were ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the reality of God's love for us, which we did not earn, which has been given to us by God's grace through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. The love of God that we have experienced that gives us the ability to love those who hate us. Card-carrying Republican evangelical Christian, how do you love the card-carrying um, liberal, maybe professes to be a Christian, but has rejected all the core doctrines of Christianity? How do you love that person? Even as, and it, honestly, one of the hardest people for me to love are the people that, that distort and confuse the gospel and turn it into some social thing. How do, we, how do we love those people? Because God loved us when we were just as bad, if not worse. That, that might just be somebody that, that God has put into your life that you can share the gospel with that will become a brother or sister in Christ. They might not, in the future, after they repent and trust in Jesus, agree with you on every political issue. But they will worship Jesus with you forever and ever. And that's the bigger deal. How, how do you love somebody who, who totally disagrees with your whole view of, of what we should be doing in this time? Whether it's wearing a, a face mask or not wearing a face mask. I don't, I, hopefully you don't hate that person. But, but how do you love that person? Because you have been so loved by God. Contemplate, meditate on the love of God. And that's what next sermon's going to be, on the love of God. And that will fuel you. That will correct your heart. The same love guides us as we seek to apply what Jesus says in verses 37 through 42. That we are not to wrongly judge or condemn, but instead we, we who have been forgiven and rescued from condemnation are to forgive and to be generous there's a gospel ethic here. Those who have been forgiven much are to forgive much. Those who have been loved by God so much are to love others much. In Jesus' kingdom, his citizens, here's, here's what you're, you're to be like. This is to mark you. Kindness, graciousness, mercy. This doesn't mean we don't take action or that we are totally passive. That we don't get upset about sin or have conflicts. But it does mean that the way that we treat others is guided by love. True, cross-bought, grace-laden, God-given, Jesus-flowing love. One of the, the great benefits for me personally in my heart through this COVID-19 pandemic, not being able to meet live stream, is that God's love has become clearer and clearer to me. 
I have been brought to the reality more and more of God's love for me and for his people and for sinners more and more. That's just a sweet truth that I didn't intend to meditate on more than normal. And it's, it's changing even more my heart. And it needs to change it more. And it needs to change your heart more. God's love for sinners, for you. Consider this and your heart, Christian. Think about your relationships with others, family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, the people in this church. Are you being guided more by the ethics of the world or the ethics of Jesus Christ? Are you quick to get angry, accuse people, slander and belittle, or are you quick? And this is what I want to be quicker with, to show mercy, to extend grace, to build people up and to bless Christian, are you obeying Jesus' call to love? And now we come to the final section, the king's wisdom, which makes up the closing of the Sermon on the Plain, and it will be the closing of my sermon. In this section, Jesus uses two parables that display his wisdom and and what will be true of those who follow and trust in Jesus. The first uses a a, a tree. This first parable uses a tree and, and its fruit to address the human heart. Now, in Scripture, the heart, as it is used here, refers to the core of who we are as people. It's what motivates us, and it dictates what we do. And Jesus says that just as a bad tree will bear bad fruit, and a good tree will bear good fruit, the one who has a bad heart, that is a heart that treasures sin, will produce what is evil. And in the context of the previous verses, the one who has a bad heart, what will they do? They will follow the world. They will live for the things of this world. They will hate people. They will judge wrongly and they will condemn. But the one who has a good heart, that is a heart that treasures Christ, will produce what is good. Again, in the context of the previous verses, the one with a good heart will follow Jesus. They will live for heavenly rewards. They will seek to love their enemies. They will forgive. They will show mercy. They will be generous. And so here we are reminded that that we cannot fool Jesus. You can't trick Jesus into thinking that you have a good heart. You can't just pretend that you're a citizen of his kingdom. Your heart will reveal the truth. Your actions come out of your heart. Your words flow out of your heart. If you're a Christian, you will still struggle with sin. At times, you will get distracted by the things of this world. You will struggle to love others. But if you've received and you are resting in Christ, there will be fruit. There will be fruit. Not because you try hard enough, but because God has graciously given you a new heart that treasures Christ. And just as a good tree bears good fruit, the new heart that God gives to his people will produce what is good and glorifies him. Now, sometimes there will be less fruit and sometimes there will be more fruit, but there will be fruit. In this sermon, I have tried to give you an overview of this powerful sermon preached by the King of Preachers. A sermon that is just as counter-cultural today as it was when Jesus first preached it nearly 2,000 years ago. For there are still, in the end, just two kingdoms. The world, the kingdom of this world, and the kingdom of God. And this sermon on on the plain must still be heard and applied by God's people. And that's what Jesus calls us to do in the closing parable regarding building on good foundation. To not just hear these things. I don't want to just kind of encourage you and and leave you maybe with a good feeling when you leave the church. 
I want you to consider these things. I want you to hear them. And then I want you to do what Jesus is, is telling you to do with this last parable. Obey. Trust in him and obey your king's words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Friend, if you come to him, if you hear his word and by faith you do what Jesus says, you are like a man who builds his house on a solid, strong foundation on the rock. For you will build your life on and you will entrust your soul to Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing when you come to Jesus. Not like a come to Jesus moment, like come to Jesus, like bow before King Jesus, repent of your sin, trust in him alone. When you come to Jesus, whatever comes in this life, blessings or sufferings, wealth or poverty, fullness or hunger, grief or joy, you will make it not because you are strong enough, but because Christ, your rock, is strong and he will keep you. You've built your life your foundation on Jesus Christ. And so he can bring you and he will bring you through the storms and the floods of this life. And he will bring you home to heaven, as we sang earlier. He will sustain you. He will bring you through it. For on Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So build your life on Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we praise you, King of Preachers. Your word continues to go forth. I do pray that you would increase our obedience as your people, not seeking to earn something from you besides these beautiful rewards that await us in your kingdom, but seeking to obey out of love and joy because we treasure you above all else. Spirit, work in our hearts. Again, please confront, convict, rebuke, exhort, encourage, strengthen, where all of these things need to happen. And I think all of those things need to happen in my own heart. I pray that you would unify your church, this church and, and your church spread throughout the world, not on some weak social agenda, but on the rock, on the cross, on Jesus Christ and his gospel. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.